This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany. Episode 2. Dave Lorden. Well, I was always fascinated with the sounds of words. Uh, and uh, I suppose my father introduced me to poetry uh, with silly nursery rhymes, you know. Uh, the earliest things I can remember, 10 and 10, 20. Give a horse plenty. When he's done, wipe his bum. 10 and 10, 20, right? So that's, that's my first first poem. Uh, and I suppose I, I grew up in what you might call the very late twilight, uh, uh, you know, the last crepuscular moments uh, of, a, of an oral culture, you know. Uh, so whereas there wouldn't have been uh, an emphasis on formal literature uh, in my house, or not, not that many books at all, really, uh, there would have been a lot of jokes and songs and carry-on and anecdotes. And, you know, uh, the, the voice was always important. and. Uh, the artifice of words was always surrounded by people who were using words for a particular effect. Entertainment, distraction, you know, and so on. So through that, and then I, um, I would have been kind of spotted in school by teachers early on. I, 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 you know, been smart and been interested in books and stuff like that. And I would have been encouraged by, you know, teachers, certain teachers. Discouraged by others, I have to say. <laughs> I concentrate on the positive today. Uh, and I uh, would have been found as someone, you know, I won a poetry competition in school one time when I was 12, I think. Uh, what was that poem about? Probably about, uh, I think it was a themed poem uh, about Easter or Christmas or some seasonal event. Uh, but I could rhyme and I could scan naturally, right? And I think, again, I picked that up from the kind of oral surrounding I grew up in. Uh, and uh, that was, I was praised for that. And, you know, I wasn't used to getting a lot of praise at school, you know, with quite a hostile uh, environment in some parts of our school life, uh, especially for kids from working class backgrounds uh, like me. And uh, it, it was unusual for me to get praise and uh, positive feedback uh, at that stage. Uh, and uh, I suppose I liked that, you know, I liked being good at something and being told I was good at something. Uh, and I suppose as a teenager, you need an identity, don't you? You know what I mean? Or it's very handy to have one. Uh, and uh, writing poetry kind of worked for me in a, in a diaristic sense. Uh, I had a lot to deal with as a teenager, like all teenagers. Uh, and I found that writing about it, following this initial encouragement, uh, was really something I did almost in an OCD way, you know? Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, I lost my virginity at the age of 14, right? Uh, in the school. Uh, the, uh, around the back of the convent, <laughs> the swings in Calakilty. Not even there anymore, these places. This is in the 1980s. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I went home and I wrote six poems about it. You know what I mean? Uh, and uh, because the experience had been intense, uh, you know, out of the blue, not what I expected, and needed a lot of processing, uh, and certainly writing about things and expressing my feelings uh, like that helped me. Uh, to process things, to understand things, uh, and it becomes a kind of an addiction, doesn't it? Uh, one becomes enamoured of one's own facility for expression, you know? And I always would have been a guy who showed off, you know, as well. 
in art and for me an awful lot of performance is obviously you know, showing up you know what I mean so I think uh, it, being in that oral culture I would have read my poems to my friends you know performed my poems to my friends you know whatever you want to call it and I had an identity as a writer or somebody who was sort of boho uh, very early on uh, and uh, that kind of carried over into university then I was the first person in my uh, housing estate to finish school. I had a leave and start at the age of 16, and I was in college at barely the age of 17, and uh, <laughs> flung from an environment of, uh, you know, living in a state where there was high unemployment and, you know, everything that goes with that, uh, as well as all the positive things I talked about. Uh, it was in the 1980s, not everything was positive, uh, and uh, I was still flung into an environment where uh, really people were from a completely different planet to me, you know. I found that difficult to adjust to. Uh, and again, I, being interested in literature, I, I had become interested in literature very much so following my, uh, you know, uh, uh, interest in uh, post-punk music. So I would read an interview with Francis Black or Robert Smith or so on, or Morrissey, and they'd talk about their songs and they'd say, well, I based that song on a, on a short story by Baudelaire. They'd go, who's Baudelaire? And they'd go look him up, or Robert Smith's first single, The Cure's first single, which they're now called Kissing an Arab, uh, <laughs> was uh, based on uh, Albert Camus' The Outsider, which I didn't read when I found that out. And that leads you to, uh, you know, existentialist literature, which leads you to Dostoevsky, and so on and so forth. And then when you're in, you're in. <laughs> I'm still reading those books. Something has to affect you, disturb you, overwhelm you, you know, fill you with anger, envy, lust, rage, vengeance, something, right? Uh, and I write on that. I write from, uh, you know, events, impacts. Some of those events might be a long time ago, you know, and keep coming back. Yes. Uh, or some of those things might be just happening to me right now. But certainly it is in response to the stimulation of my environment, positively or negatively, uh, that I write. Uh, and, you know, I feel that. Uh, for me, my journey in poetry may be over, you know. I'm open-minded about that, obviously, but I've got three books of poems now, and strays and waves that could, you could call four books of poems, really. Uh, and uh, I feel I have kind of, for myself and from my point of view, in that form, uh, expressed everything I feel I need to express in that form. Uh, so it's unlikely that there'll be any further collections of poetry from me. They'll be selected or whatever, you know some stage, but uh, I don't feel uh, driven to write poetry, you know, and I think something that is, the, the writing poetry is a kind of, <laughs> a kind of, uh, you, uh, you know, you don't want to be, uh, <laughs> when I'm writing poetry, I'm actually incapable of doing anything else, right, or because you're in a condition of obsession and inspiration, right, and I'm in a condition where it's a type of, you know, you could be, uh, you, you know, if you, if you, if they didn't know you were a poet, you'd be diagnosed with, you know, manic depression. And I think it's quite a similar thing, because I would be in a kind of a, a, a kind of a manic high, I guess, you know, when I'm writing. Uh, and, like, I, you can't, I can't communicate with people. My uh, very, very, very 
difficult for the people you love, I imagine, right? So, you know, kind of glad when the storm leaves you or the fire leaves you. Like, poetry for me has always been associated with those kind of events, you know, those kind of out of the blue disturbances, traumas, a need to reckon with things that won't go away until you reckon with them. Uh, and often, a lot of deep-rooted emotional and psychological uh, issues to do with the world I live in, and very much off the immediate environment, like the poem we're talking about today, and coming to terms with that, uh, and finding a way to live in the world, uh, you know, at peace with the world in some way, right? Difficult word to be at peace with in so many ways, uh, yet you must be at peace with the world in order to carry out your basic human functions as a father or a teacher or a husband or whatever. You know, you can't be in a constant state of war and disturbance. Uh, so, in a way, I suppose the poems are a way of uh, a reckoning with and uh, balancing out uh, and uh, expressing in the full sense of that word, express, you know, uh, and uh, it is connected with the visionary tradition of people like uh, Rambo and uh, Ginsberg and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, and certainly the idea that there is something which drives you insane enough you know, or something enters you with such power, right, that it has to be brought out again, uh, reshaped as an artistic thing, you know. Uh, that's the case. Yeah, I don't know. I don't write poetry as a day job. Obviously, you edit, in a sense, but not even, really. You know, I mean, most of my poems are written in a very intense bouts of writing, where there's an obsessive concern with getting the line right, getting the scan right, getting the rhyme right, getting the rhythm right. Uh, and it's a struggle, it's a battle with, uh, uh, it's a battle with the, with the work, right? And again, it's not something that, you know, you can do as a day job because, you know, you're actually, you're a bit, uh, you're nuts, you're a bit nuts, you know what I mean? You're kind of, in, in some sense, you know, uh, autistic, you know, when that's going on. You know, you're not really involved in the world, you're only involved in this really sort of masturbatory thing that you're doing, in a way, you know? my poems are often narrative or story like most often there's a story behind them right uh, uh, at some level so you know uh, secondly a lot of the stories I write are, are interested in the language as much as they are interested in the narrative so I'm not sure I make that division in my own work I know that division is out there uh, what's the difference if you talk about strict non-fiction right say for example I recently wrote a uh, just basic notes, little essay about the literature of homelessness for this thing in fly because they've got a special issue on homelessness. Um, like that was research, you know, that's kind of cool cam research, finding out about things. I'm, I'm interested in writing a book about the Iliad, uh, which I've taken a lot of notes for, and that's intense research. That's kind of day job stuff. That's, you know, uh, as any historian or researcher would do. But a poem or a story often, actually a story just as often as a poem, it's something that hits me out of the blue, you know what I mean? It doesn't, co it doesn't come because I sat at a desk at 9 o'clock, right? It comes because I was, you know, sitting in a fucking early house at 9 o'clock, you know what I mean? Like, more likely, uh, to be honest. Uh, for me, it's important that the poem has the authenticity of the initial disturbance, right? The initial, you know, something has entered me here which I have to get out, right? And figure out and reckon with, right? It's pushing to get out, right? 
uh, and so on. So with my first book, my first book was about suicide, find the ring. A lot of my friends had attempted or committed suicide. I'd suffered from being diagnosed with psychotic depression, uh, which is rather exotic, right? <laughs> uh, so I'd had a traumatic experience with depression, probably like that. Uh, and also, of course, the world is arguably committing suicide with climate change and uh, slow, I was surrounded by slow suicide, as we all are, by, by, by which I mean addiction and you know, also surrounded by death in life. You know, people doing things that really they don't want to do. So that whole team uh, was something I had to process and uh, reckon with. And uh, what prompted me there overall for that book, the first book, uh, was that I was, you know, sick of really listening to so-called experts talk about suicide and depression. Uh, in terms of statistics and uh, formal academic language, uh, which uh, you know was very abstract and lacked uh, the uh, compassion and indeed the particularized knowledge that one needs to really understand these things, because everybody's story is their own story, uh, and I wanted to tell the stories that I knew about the people that I knew in great detail, uh, which kind of ranged from 14-year-olds uh, hanging themselves because they were being bullied for being gay to uh, you know, a 16-year-old attached himself to a barrel of gas uh, in a housing estate in Tralee because life was just too difficult because he was ugly, uh, you know, and demonstrably ugly, uh, to my own story, to other friends who hung him, you know, so I knew all the details about this and I felt that it was something that needed to be expressed. So that's overall in terms of the structure of the book. I, and a lot of the poems came there kind of out of the blue, you know, I mean, again, as a teenager, and this hasn't happened to me for a long time, but it did happen to me. Uh, I woke up a couple of times with entire poems in my head, you know what I mean? Like they had written themselves during my dreams, and all I had to do was write them down, right? But for me, that's not a common occurrence, but it has happened once or twice, very when I was young and, you know, hormonally imbalanced and all that, no doubt. Uh, so for me, there was a type of, uh, you know, like you're kind of not capable of your routine at 9 to 5, even normal family life, right? That's why writers have retreats. You know what I mean? Or artists have retreats, right? Uh, because actually, when they're really in their creative mode, not, not fit for human fucking consumption. Like, you know what I mean? Like, artists are kind of, you know, massively arrogant, cranky, right? Self-centered. Okay, like, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about universal characteristics here, but very often, right, in my experience. And it's better to admit that and deal with it rather than pretend it's not the case. And when I... Well, I, I, I uh, you know, I just, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's a, type of, it's a type of disturbance that you have to reckon with. written in the urgent conditions of the recession, uh, 09 10, uh, and really a kind of a uh, really uh, huge uh, pressure to sacrifice, right? That we've all got to tighten our belts now. We all partied. We have to make sacrifices, right? So I, being uh, uh, interested in words and the history of words and etymology I researched. Sacrifice, okay? 
and you know sacrifice has to do as it turns out with uh, scapegoating and uh, you know we didn't get to harvest this year so it's got to be the ugly guy's fault isn't it so let's kill him and sure we'll make his blood we'll rain we'll we'll use his blood in the fields and next year we might get to harvest so same idea really okay you remember at the time there was a level where we felt that uh, he didn't know whether you were, when he was going to be in the bank tomorrow you know you really did, you, like things were really kind of gone and lost and so on and so forth and uh, i was terrified panicked uh, and I think I wrote in response to that, The Team of Sacrifice, a book which is very cynical, I have to say. And then the third book was uh, an attempt to bring both of those feelings together. Uh, Lost Tribe of the Wicklow Mountains, uh, intended to be uh, a visionary book uh, about hope and, you know, uh, utopia uh, and the real, the real presence of utopia. Uh, and uh, trying to be hopeful, trying to be more hopeful, and trying to learn to love the world instead of hate it, and to look, you know, uh, generally speaking, for the good things in it. Uh, and again, look, I think it's a good way to frame the poem now, because um, this is an estate with 6,000 people living in it. Uh, one can argue that they're here by choice because they put the mortgages up, but there's no real choice here. Uh, this is a large distance from the city centre where most people work. Uh, there wouldn't have been very many options in terms of price-wise other than this, anywhere nearer to Dublin, uh, and so on and so forth. So people are here not really by choice, by economic circumstance. Uh, as you can see from walking around it, uh, you know, the, there are 6,000 people here, which is more people than live in Connacht uh, There's no pub here, there's no community centre, or at least one, not one that's open uh, or functional. Uh, there is a supermarket, a hairdressers and stuff like that. So, I mean, in terms of things that build community, they don't exist. Uh, what's not so inspiring about it in general is that it is what they call a dormitory estate. So that during the day it's cleared out of people working in town, uh, who will get up very early, uh, often have young children, went to bed quite late then. Uh, so, there's, you know, especially for the first few years and around the time I wrote Love Command's Neighbourhood, there wouldn't have been a huge amount of community or interaction, you know. Over the years that kind of progresses, obviously. And know that the children are grown up, you know, to a certain age, they all know each other and they'll make the community not us. But certainly it felt like a very different place uh, to Connacht where I grew up. In Connacht um everybody knows everybody else, obviously. That has a good side and a bad side, obviously. I think it's mostly a good side, really. <laughs> well, after 10 years, uh, of course you know places through your senses, right? Uh, and. Uh, <laughs> one of the major senses by which you know places uh, is the sense of sound, like what you hear, okay? One familiarizes oneself with one's surroundings for years to a large degree, so I had a lot of noises that collect in an environment, right? Some of them routine, some of them regular, the barking of particular dogs, uh, the screaming of particular babies, uh, the bellowing, like I say, of especially uh, uh, each child. Uh, and, uh, you know, all kinds of, as well, uh, 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 familiar neighborhood sounds, which on the other hand are kind of alienating in this context because you don't know the people, you know what I mean? So you're approaching them through almost these coded, non-linguistic noises, right? Uh, which do, because they break your silence, you know, they break your peace of mind. Uh, they have this hostility to you, right? this aggressive stance towards you, uh, and I needed to, uh, I, I just wanted to cleanse my spirit 
of hatred and aggression uh, which builds up after years in one place and like a polar bear gets depressed in the zoo a human being living 10 or 15 years in the one house in the one place listening basically to the same thing day in day out uh, without even knowing the names of the people you're listening to uh, you mean it's kind of polar bear effect isn't it you know what i mean or that's how i felt anyway uh, perhaps i'm more uh, nomadic than uh, spiritually than others i don't think so really maybe i'm more aware someone who I have so much respect for really uh, because like you know whatever um, difficulties uh, Carl has encountered you know and he's had a lot of difficulties in his life and a lot of disadvantages in his life uh, and he lives in the middle of a place where uh, there's a huge amount of difficulty and disadvantage continuously uh, and uh, inner city Dublin uh, in the part, you know, the ghetto, really, um, and he has a massively positive attitude, you know. This guy who lost his father to hepatitis many years ago when he was a child, uh, who was, you know, really lost his nephew to cancer uh, around the time that we were right, I was writing Last Tribe with the Mountains, the book, and uh, just that positivity and that way of looking at the world. Uh, as a place where the effort, the struggle, uh, the struggle is for love, the struggle is for uh, acceptance uh, and, uh, a, a, you know, uh, interaction rather than rejection and, uh, you know, kind of willful alienation, willful separation. Uh, whereas in the book uh, Invitation to a Sacrifice, it was really about my disgust with everything, myself included. Uh, Last Tribe of the Wicklow Mountains was about, again, that attempt to rediscover uh, a loving, positive connection. And for that to happen, I had to take, uh, I suppose, instruction or inspiration from somebody like Carl, uh, who's famously positive as a person and as a writer. I mean, he's, most of his most famous pieces is called The Positivity Manifesto. <laughs> so, and not in a glib way, you know. Just to say a little bit about the Cabinet Poem Hospital, uh, which I think is, uh, I suppose, a fodder poem, uh, if that's the right term, uh, to uh, Lockman's Neighbourhood uh, Hospital. Uh, one of Captain's most well-known poems, just to repeat it for people who might know, uh, is written while he's uh, at, uh, in a recovering from a TB operation in a, in a ward uh, in Dublin. Uh, quite an ugly place, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, but Kevin doesn't write about the ugliness of it, but uh, about the beauty of it. Uh, and uh, nothing whatsoever is by love debarred. Uh, surely one of the greatest lines of poetry ever written, or certainly in my mind. Uh, and I suppose having kind of well, I had taken that poem into my soul uh, many years ago, uh, that kind of bubbled to the surface in a way through Love Commands the Neighbourhood. And I don't think that kind of poem could be written by me, uh, unless I had taken in Catherine's similar 
briefer, I have to say, probably because he's a much better poet, uh, and uh, a, a take on being in a hospital. So I suppose for me, uh, being surrounded by 6,000 people uh, who are hard to distinguish, uh, you know, in many ways, you know, it's the anonymity, the homogeneity of these places. Uh, you know, it was my hospital experience, and I had to turn around and love the thing, you know, love, love everything. Dave Lorden for ah, Reverberations. Know, we might just wait until it's oh, okay. done. It would be nice to get it. Although maybe it's kind of fitting, is it? See, that's a pro, <laughs> that's a pro, like, you know, I wouldn't have noticed that now. Yeah. I would have just kept going. Yeah. Where are you going now, mate? Can't we off to Wales or something? We've already been in Wales in half an hour, have See, it's a kind of an ex uh, example of what I'm talking about. There's no peace. Dave Lorden for Reverberations, reading the poem Love Commands the Neighbourhood, dedicated to my good friend Carl Parkinson. Boy who bellows like the Frisians on a Monaghan hill. Boy who screeches like a martyr in the flame. Love him. Stunned woman in slippers and nightgown, slouching a zigzag to Superqueen, scoring cider for herself, vodka for her bruiser. Love her. Indian inkman who on the night of his breakout smeared dog dirt on his neighbor's front doors, hurled a brick through a little girl's window. Him too. Teenage thief who nicked your MacBook in the park and in the cafe your keys and will anyway die sometime tomorrow afternoon in a glass or a powder. Speeding mother of four on her smartphone in the car yet to crash into a toddler. T.Y. dealing molly and weed to the J.C.'s and the flight tip on the banks of the tree trout stream border dividing private and council estates. Dropout student whacking the wall on the wardrobe next door, trying to drown all his fatherly anger in the well only he can be drowned in. Croopy kids who will whoop through the walls all the nights of the week, all hours alarms, electric hysterics, banshee-ing silence, noise-bombing calm, yakking mutts you want to throttle or drown. Love all these. Love them though they press you to white noise and earplugs, though they edge you to codeine and dope. They are helpless like you are. They are helpless like sorrow, like anger, like love. Chubby thigh, always chuckling like the chuckle gods, his brother, as he jogs after a football on the green. Love the laughter and the boy. Love the football and the green. Love the god and his brother. Love the ghost of the pole who crashed into the wall. Love the neighbour in a sari from Nairobi who claims you spoke tongues in a warehouse in Tala called the Victory, Victory Centre. Center. 
loved a door-to-door hawker who was born in a hut in the drone-flattened cush and now parks his black beamer in front of your western house, special offering bake molds and marbles and fly swats dispensing catalogues of flimflam and g-jaws your daughters absorbed in for hours. Love all those with a love like a grieving, for they too are leaving, they too are going their way. Close by, there's a man who stole to the barracks after bombardment, collecting watches and teeth, and a woman who walked out of a bomb, loved them. Love fissures in footpaths that unspool overnight like the nerve ends of an earthquake or graph lines of impossible interest. Love the playground laid down seven years from its promise where youngsters are pooling in twilight, nursing their secret new lives. Love the road they call spine and all the bright yellow signs of advice that nobody follows. Love the sexual night screams of cats, the boorish cockeying of crows, lampposts they look down from and assuredly outweigh. Love the first rough throat in the morning, love the last sad mutt in the night. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany. Episode 2. Dave Lorden.